Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. It's been a great week. I've returned from the supervolcano in southern Italy. I've returned to London. Did a great event today with the British Academy, talking to some of the best scholars from all the different disciplines in the humanities. Some of the friends of the pod were there, people like Sarah Churchwell and Lewis Dartnell, trying to inspire young people to choose a career in the humanities, choose humanities subject university. Great honour to be there. Speaking of people who love the humanities, I've got Madeline Miller on the podcast. She's a wonderful novelist. Her debut was The Song of Achilles. She, like me, was exposed to a lot of Greek and Latin myths and stories when she was growing up. And she wanted to explore the love between Achilles and Patroclus that she saw in the Iliad. It won the Orange Prize for fiction. Not bad for a debut novelist. She has just written Circe about that other remarkable character who comes up in the Odyssey, the woman who first tried to turn Odysseus into a pig and then became his lover. She's written, it's another wonderful novel inspired by that greatest of works of literature, the Odyssey. It was great fun sharing stories about childhoods dominated by Greek gods and goddesses. It's still Waterloo week, everybody. You can head over to the History Hit TV and watch our programme on the Battle of Waterloo. Many of you feeding back, enjoying that. Thank you very much for watching. If you want to watch that, you can basically do it for free because when you sign up for History Hit TV, you get a month for free. Then if you use the code Waterloo, Waterloo, you get three months for just three pounds or dollars. Please head over and do that. Use the code Waterloo. In the meantime, here is fantastic Madeline Miller. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. Madeline, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a real treat. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. You and I share a, a love of, of Greek myth, uh, of, of epic Bronze Age Greek poetry, whatever, however you want to call it. Tell me, it sounds like we're kind of similar upbringing. Tell me, how did you come to, how did you come to develop this, uh, this passion? Um, you know, it really goes all the way back to my mother, who used to read me pieces of the Iliad and the Odyssey as bedtime stories, starting around when I was kind of five and six years old, which I, I really don't know what she was thinking, and she has not been able to explain herself, but I'm thrilled she did it, because I absolutely fell in love, and I, and I you know, in particular, I can remember that first line of the Iliad, sing goddess of the destructive rage of Achilles, and just being totally hooked and wanting to know more and more. So as soon as I could read for myself, I read every version of Greek myths out there that I could find. And then I was fortunate that when I went off to high school, I had a Latin teacher who saw that I was obsessed with Homer and offered to teach me ancient Greek. So it's been something I have been, it's been part of my life for a long time. My kids are seven, four, and three, and they are deep into the Greek myths, I gotta say. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, we do, we do a lot of, a lot, there's a lot of Greek myths in our family. Occasionally, we'll get the Viking myths get a look in, but we're, we're mainly a Greek myth family. Um, what, why, uh, now that you've obviously, you've read them in the original Greek, you've become a scholar in them, and now you're, you're writing sort of fictionalized stories around them, why do you think they provide such a rich resource for artists, novelists, even, you know, thousands of years after they were first written down? You know, I think that all myth is really 
about sort of primal human stories. And they're primal human stories that are blown up to this kind of big extent. Um, but, but that just allows us to really enter into them and gives us more room to, to be part of them. So, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, these are stories that are very human stories at their core. You know, the Odyssey is the story of this exhausted war veteran trying to get home to his family. Um, and the Iliad is, is the story of, you know, this terrible war, the destruction of the war, but also of Achilles having made this choice to stake everything on his reputation and then having to live with that choice. And so part of what I, I love about them is the fact that I, I feel that they are just rich with all this humanity, grief, love, hope, despair, ambition, you know, all of these things that are, that are all mixed into them, but in this really potent, larger-than-life way that sort of allows us to, to feel them in our own lives. So I, I think that's, for me anyway, a piece of it. You could have written treatises on, on, this, on the original poems. You could have uh, translated them again. Why did you feel you wanted to kind of augment them? Why, why do you feel you wanted to write fiction around them? Um, I think it was because I, I was looking to see something, or I was looking for a version of the stories that, that really wasn't there. Um, the first time that I encountered Circe in the context of reading the Odyssey, I was reading it in English, and I was incredibly frustrated with, her, with the portrait of her. Um, you know, I was exciting. I felt like it was this tease. Here's this incredibly powerful woman. She can turn men into pigs. Why is she doing that? What's going on with her? How does she have this kind of power? What does it mean to be a witch anyway? Um, all of these sort of questions swirling around her. How does she have this kind of independence that she seems to have? And why does she have this benevolent side that ends up helping Odysseus? So all these sort of tantalizing um, hints about her, and as well as sort of the, the piece that was very inspirational to me, Homer calls her the dread goddess who speaks like a human. You know, what does it mean to speak like a human? All of these things were completely unaddressed in the Circe episode. They were hinted at, but not addressed. And so, you know, lots of times when people talk about sort of Circe and Circe turning men to pigs, there's sort of this feeling of like, well, she's doing it just because, you know, you know how women are, they turn men to pigs, which is totally inadequate in my opinion. And so part of what I wanted to do is say, okay, this is Odysseus's version, and it is actually literally Odysseus's version. He's telling the part of the story. He's narrating the, the Circe episode. But how, what about if we kind of release that constriction and we imagine it from someone else's point of view? So for me, it was always, you know, you can't really write a paper like that. Because what you're doing is you're sort of, or what I'm doing is I'm using Homer as my jumping off point. I'm using clues from Homer, inspiration from Homer. But I am sort of moving towards this psychological portrait of Circe that he, I think, you know, hints at but does not flesh out. I just, while we're on the subject, I always love that Odysseus takes 10 years getting back to Ithaca. He spent seven years with Calypso and a year with Circe, right? So he was really only on the road for two yeah. years. I've, I've always found that a pretty, pretty odd. <laughs> Yes, and the year with Cersei was pretty great because at the end he doesn't want to leave. His men have to basically pry him out. Now, the Calypso time, he, he definitely, you know, he's theoretically sitting on the shore and weeping every day. But yes, it's not for, you know, we talk about him as the ultimate voyager, but he does spend a lot of time in one place. Well, you know, but it's the seven years, right? It's the seven-year itch. The science is in on that. That's the, the, the length <laughs> of a, a, the natural life cycle of a relationship. So yeah, he was crying a bit after Calypso. <laughs> but um, first of all, does, where does Cersei only appear in the Odyssey. I, I should know this, but does she appear anywhere else that gives you 
any other insights into this character or did Homer just create this person? So Homer is the first sort of record that we have of Circe. It's the oldest myth that we have about her. She is mentioned in a number of later myths and some authors actually go quite quite deep into her. Ovid has a couple episodes with Circe in the Metamorphoses. She's a goddess of transformation, so Ovid wants to tackle her. Um, he tackles her in a very different light, not as the mysterious witch with lions and wolves on her island, but as this lovelorn, pathetic figure who's constantly falling in love with the wrong guy. We also see her pop up in the Argonautica, um, Apollonius of Rhodes' Argonautica, where Medea and Jason, um, after getting the Golden Fleece, they flee with the Golden Fleece. They're pursued by Medea's father, um, who intends no good towards them. And in order to escape Medea's father, they do something pretty horrible, which is they chop up Medea's brother and throw him over so that her father has to stop and pick up the pieces. Um, But because of this, they are tainted with sort of blood taint with miasma so they have to go to um to Circe's island to be purified by her so I knew you know that was a myth I wanted to work with um I I didn't use this in the story but she is mentioned by Virgil in the most wonderful way in the Aeneid um she's her island is sort of the last thing that Aeneas has to pass by before landing in in Italy and Virgil does the scene like a horror movie It's like, oh, they're passing by the island. They're so close that they can kind of smell the smoke from the fire. And then they just hear screaming of animals who used to be men. And it's like, oh, don't go in that house. It's sort of like the spooky music is playing. And they're like, well, we just kept on sailing. We didn't stop there. Um, So it's it's very interesting to see. She has been tackled by a number of um, of other authors. And, And even on down the line in medieval and Renaissance time, she was very much um, sort of a kind of treated as like the monster in the closet lots of times in terms of women having power and sort of renaissance manuals about how to control your wife they would reference Circe this is what happens if you don't properly control your wife she'll start you know turning you into a pig so I like that so you're in a very rich historical literary tradition it's it's Ovid Virgil Miller you know you're all adding you're all you're all Im- embellishing this original myth that, that Homer gave yes us. and and you know that's one of the the things that I love is that actually this retelling tradition is quite old um, you know as soon as Homer existed as soon as the Iliad and the Odyssey existed these stories were being told and retold and reshaped that's what the tragedians were doing Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides um, and and all the later poets after them and so so it's actually you know a, a time honored classical tradition to to retell and reshape and and recast these stories. In fact, that's kind of what the Aeneid is, is Virgil saying, okay, Homer told it from the Greek side, now I'm going to tell it from the Trojan side. And so, you know, I I felt like, I actually didn't feel like I was doing something that was such a break with tradition. I felt like I was kind of following along in the footsteps. I suppose inevitably this is a Circe for our time. I mean, you, you talk about the misogynist depictions of Circe in, in the Middle Ages. Is this is this a Circe that is anchored inevitably in your experience, in our experience in contemporary society? Well, yes, in the sense that I am anchored in contemporary society. Um, but I also think that, you know, a lot of these issues actually pop up 
in the ancient material if you're kind of looking past, you know, if, if you're open to them. I mean, even just the fact that Circe doesn't get to tell her own story, that um, Odysseus tells her story and he's constantly talking about how, you know, sexy she is and how beautiful she is and how alluring she is, which you realize is actually, given the fact that he's telling this story to people that he's trying to impress, that's actually him making himself look good. It's not really even about her. You know, it's sort of about, oh, I slept with this hot goddess for a year. Um, look how look how cool I am. And I tamed this witch. And, you know, all of this stuff is sort of actually about burnishing his own legend. Um, but within that, you can see, you know, what would it be like to be a woman living basically alone on an island? You know, you would be a target. When Odysseus's men show up at her door, um, we've seen them show up at other places and we know that they go on raids and that in many ways Odysseus is, is a glorified pirate. And so imagining that from her perspective, you know, here's this group of men who have shown up at her door. Are they friendly? Are they not? You know, she's going she's gonna to strike first and, and ask questions later. So I feel that, that the myths really in, invite us dealing with a lot of these same issues. I mean, even just, you know, there's a, there's a, there's so many myths that I, I could reference that I feel like are just things that modern day, you know, women and lots of people are, are still dealing with. The Cassandra myth is so um, present with us. The idea of this woman who, um, because she refused to sleep with Apollo, she is cursed to always tell the truth and never be believed. And so, you know, I think a lot of women have had that experience of trying to speak the truth of something that has happened and being ignored or silenced. And um, there's even a, a character, speaking of, of modern day relevance, there's a character in the Aeneid who um, is raped by Zeus. Her name is Juturna. And because he doesn't want her to cause a ruckus, he gives her a payoff. And the payoff is he makes her a goddess. And so that's sort of her, like, keep quiet. That's her settlement. And, you know, wow, that's all over the news today, um, women who are. So I, I honestly feel like um, what I was doing is I was bringing stuff to light that was, that was already there, or I was sort of making some logical assumptions. But I never felt like I was inserting stuff. Because the truth is, although we've made a lot of progress, I think women are still dealing with a lot of these things. My daughter and I do a lot of sailing together and she occasionally asks me whether I'm going to kill her in order to achieve a favourable wind like Agamemnon and <laughs> And I mean, that's pretty dark, pretty dark for a seven-year-old. Yes. So, so during the course of writing the, both this book and the, your wonderful book about Achilles and Patroclus, how much, how much history do you consult? I mean, I, I, is this, what, what, what did you read about women leading an independent life uh, in this period? Or, 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 or is it just, is it too remote and you don't bother with that? Um, I definitely read, uh, read some things, but I also, you know, don't think of myself as writing historical fiction because it is set in a mythological world. I think of the books as more like literary adaptation or mythological realism. But I, I do want them to be grounded in certain things. And so, you know, there's an episode in Circe where Circe goes to Crete. And I, you know, wanted to make sure I was, I was getting a lot of stuff about Knossos and Crete correct. Um, anytime that there's like sort of a physical object in the book, you know, a dagger or a brooch or some kind of, you know, piece of jewelry, almost all of those are from actual artifacts that we have, um, either directly or inspired by artifacts that we have. So I always wanted to be informed by the historical record, but I also, you know, release myself from it in moments. I did 
uh, so much research about ancient weaving and ancient looms, only 1% of which actually made it into the book, which believe me was the right amount. Um, but I allowed myself to kind of take a jump with that. So here's, here's the technology that existed in Egypt. Here's the technology that existed in the Mycenaean Bronze Age world. And then now imagine that you have the genius Daedalus taking that one step further. What would that look like? So, you know, again, I kind of am using the research as a, as a jumping off point. What's, what's next for you? You're going to continue mining uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey for, uh, and, and give, bring us more amazing stories? Hopefully, uh, I, I will be still in the mythological world, although um, I think I am saying goodbye to Homer at this point. These were the two stories, the story of Achilles and, and Patroclus and the story of Circe that I really, really wanted to tell. Um, so I am looking towards the other great ancient love of my life, which is Virgil's Aeneid. And then the other thing that I do, completely separate in some ways from, from classics, is I'm a Shakespeare theater director. And... Uh, so The Tempest has been rattling around in my mind for a really, really long time. So I don't know which one of those is going to come first, the Aeneid or The Tempest, but hopefully eventually both of them. Well, you're choosing from a pretty, a pretty rich field. I can I ask you a little bit about the Patroclus and Achilles, because that's where many people sure. will know about your work from. Um, what, that must have been a fascinating relationship to write about. It was, it was. And it was, you know, again, sort of, I think that my, and my impulse to write about it came from this real frustration in some ways with what I was seeing in the scholarship, which was that talk of their relationship, talk of them being lovers is something that was well established in the ancient world as one of the possible interpretations of their, of their relationship. But in the modern world, I felt like that had dropped out a little bit. In fact, I thought it had been kind of forcibly closeted um, as an interpretation of their relationship. And so I wanted to write the story that I felt like, sh you know, I wanted to see in the world. And it, it was, it was really, Patroclus was a, was a wonderful character to, to live with for 10 plus years, um, which is how long it took me to, to write the book, because he's, he also has some really interesting things that, that pop up about him in the Iliad. Um, you know, the main thing that we see about him, of course, that's right in our face is that he is killed, spoiler, um, and then Achilles, you know, completely goes you know, over the edge with grief and rage. It's sort of like a bomb has detonated in his life. Um, but we don't really see who Patroclus is leading up to that moment or who, what his and Achilles' relationship is like leading up to that moment. So that moment with Achilles is, is so powerful, but also to me really mysterious. Why? Why does Patroclus mean so much to him? Through the whole Iliad, Achilles is telling us, you know, that the only thing that matters to him is his reputation and that he will never fight for the Greeks again until, you know, Agamemnon personally apologizes to him. But as soon as Patroclus is dead, all that is out the window. There actually is something that he cares about more than his reputation and more than getting back at Agamemnon, and that's, and that's Patroclus. So um, I, I wanted the book to kind of be moving towards that moment you know, if that's the end of their relationship, what does the beginning look like? And I, I also think their relationship is, is really powerful because along with, you know, their, their obviously adult affection for each other is the fact that they, they grow up together um, and they're, they're companions when they're young as well. And so I think those are very strong bonds um, 
so it was it was really interesting to to dig into that relationship and to dig into the very few references to Patroclus that are out there. I think it's easy for lots of people to forget if they're unfamiliar with the Iliad and they, they've just seen the summaries. And it's actually not the story of ten years of war against Troy in the way that yes. you could argue the Odyssey. The, the Iliad is, is is very precise. It's the story of Achilles's rage after the death of Patroclus and 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 his and his feud with Agamemnon and how that resolves his feud with Agamemnon. It's 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 such a it, it must have been it's a huge canvas for you to work on because there's so much that's left unsaid within that. Yes, exactly. And and that's one of the things that I love about Homer is how expansive the world is. I mean, you could literally take any character from Homer and write a whole novel about them. There's so much kind of richness of suggested detail and, and such an exciting world. And as you say, um, the Iliad is a very, you know, it's, it is kind of this perfect piece. It begins with Achilles's rage and ends with um, him releasing his rage and the funeral of Hector, which sort of brings that full circle, brings us, you know, closes the loop of, of his rage. Um, so it's such a it's such a wonderful piece. But, you know, you're right. It's not the 10 years. It's, it's this potent episode. Well, thank you so much for coming uh, on the podcast today. Tell us all the name of the book. Uh, it's Circe. Simple. Nice and simple. Does what it says on the tin. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I, I will. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading it to my daughter. Well, thank you. I hope she enjoys it. I'm glad you're not sacrificing her for favorable winds. Well, you know what? The jury's out. You know, there's a lot more sailing to come. Um, Thank you very much indeed, Madeline. All the very best with it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I feel we have the history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.